We are deficient in our thinking of God the Son when we think of Him as God disguised as a person, God wearing skin. All of us have those events in our life that just stand out in our memory, something that happens and it just makes this indelible mark on our memories. And we will always sort of know and remember where we were, what we were doing when such and such an event uh, happened. For my life, I have three of those events that I can think of, three non-personal things that happened that I'll always remember, the circumstances that were going on when those things happened. The first would be the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan in 1981. The second would be the explosion of the Space Shuttle Challenger in 1985. And then the third, of course, is going to be 9-11. Those events stand out for me as things that I'll always remember, what I was doing, where I was at, what was going on in my life when that sort of thing happened. The event that we're going to look at today or begin looking at today is one of those that for Peter and James and John certainly stood out for the rest of their life. They certainly remembered this vividly. We know this for a fact because Peter will, will recount this for us. Also, John, which we read earlier, will also allude to this, this life-changing event known as the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. It was a life-changing event. It was an event that they would have always remembered in part because of its uniqueness. It is one of the, if not the most, unique episodes in the Scriptures, the transformation of Jesus Christ before the eyes of Peter, John, and James. Some of you may be uh, aware of this fact. If you don't, you're about to be aware of this. But some of you may know that many, if not most, of the stories in our Bible have parallels in pagan literature. You may have heard this before, but particularly in the Old Testament, the major stories of the Old Testament, most all of them, if not all of them, have some sort of parallel somewhere in secular writing or in ancient writing or pagan literature. Some of those, the most more well-known ones, we think of the flood accounts. Many cultures have a flood account, a global flood account. Others, such as maybe the Epic of Gilgamesh, you may have read the Epic of Gilgamesh and its parallels with Scripture. There's a story called the Legend of uh, Sargon. The Legend of Sargon is a story about a baby that was saved by being placed in a reed basket and floated down a river. And then the baby was rescued by a person named Akwi, who adopted the baby as her son. Obviously, parallels there with the story of Moses being saved by the basket. Or the story, you may have uh, have some familiarity with the myth of Pandora, Pandora's box. We use that phrase to describe an event or something that lets something out of the box, and once it's let out of the box, you can't put it back in. Well, the myth of Pandora is the story of a woman who opened this box, and by opening the box, released into the world that which was previously unknown, suffering and disease and hurt and trouble was released into the world. The world did not know those things before she opened this box. And once they were out, they couldn't go back into the box. Obviously, parallels there with the story of Eve and the fall of mankind. So most of our stories in our Old Testament have some sort of parallel in pagan literature. This story, however, has no parallel anywhere. By the way, I should hasten to say 
that those parallels in pagan literature always can be traced to a copying of the stories of Scripture, a, a stealing of those events and a stealing of the story from the pages of Scripture. But when we turn to the, to the story of the transfiguration of Christ, this is a story which has no parallel anywhere in any human experience, anywhere in any literature known to man. There is no parallel story that can be found in ancient Jewish literature. There's no parallel story in the Talmud and the uh, Qumran writings. There's nothing in the apocryphal books. There is nothing in Muslim literature. There's nothing in Egyptian myths. There's nothing in Hellenistic myths. There's no Greek mythology that parallels with this. There's no Eastern stories that parallel with this. There's no Sub-Sahara stories. There is nothing anywhere in all of the human experience that has a parallel to the transfiguration of Christ. And the reason for that, I believe, is that the story of the transfiguration of Christ is a story that is inseparable from the Trinitarian nature of Christ. And because it's inseparable from the Trinitarian nature of Christ, it therefore does not have parallels in pagan literature. But that being said, this is the story that we approach this morning is a story that stands for us as extremely unique and very singular in its elements. Now, it will have some parallels, as we'll begin to see, in Old Testament literature. But we will begin to realize, I think, as we work through this, just the uniqueness of these events. So with that being said, that brief introduction, let's go ahead and read our passage from verse 2 down through verse 13. So beginning from verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does first first come to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. As we approach this story, as we read earlier, the story of the bush that burned was, but was not consumed, that story really serves as a paradigm for us to fixate in our mind the elements of that story, because that story will help guide us into this story. The, the story of the bush that burned in many ways has parallels with this story, and that sets the proper mindset, the proper mindset to come to this also on a mountain, also a revealing of God, also a terrible display of God, also a speaking of God out of the cloud, so many things that parallel the two stories for them. So as we approach this, we approach the story with something of the reverence and something of the of the holiness of taking our shoes off because we are now on holy ground. This passage itself speaks to us of such holiness as this. So as we begin our passage, we begin from the very beginning from verse two and after six days, and we pause right there to just make a quick note to ourselves of the 
unusualness of what we just read. After six days, in all of Mark's gospel, there are exactly two instances in which he delineates a specific time frame that passes between one story and the next. Every story in Mark's gospel, every miracle, every parable that's told, every confrontation with the Pharisees, everything that happens in Mark's gospel is introduced by one of two words, immediately or and, except for the initiation of the supper from the Passover in chapter 14 and this account as we read after six days. So only two events in all of Mark's story does he give us some sort of specifically delineated time frame for the beginning of that story. And so as thus, it makes us set up and take note that Mark has given us instead of immediately or and, he says after six days. So that lets us know that what happened before and what's about to happen now, there's a connection between the two that we should see. That Mark has led us from one to the other. And what he's leading us to see here, I believe, is to, just as we said earlier, he is inviting us to think of of Moses, to look to Moses, to have in our mind that event of Moses in which he was prepared for six days As he entered the cloud, there was this preparation time of six days before God comes and meets with him on the mountain. And so as Mark is inviting us here to look to this story and to have in the back of our mind Moses and Moses' three meetings with God on the mountain. We have that in our mind as we approach this because we read in Exodus chapter 44 that on the seventh day, was when God comes and meets with Moses. Now, let me also hasten to just add real quickly that Matthew, in Matthew's parallel account in Matthew 17, he also says the same sort of thing. After six days, then on the seventh day is when this happens. Now, if we were to read in Luke's account, Luke will say after about eight days. Now, that doesn't stumble us up. There's no inconsistency. There's especially no contradiction here because we know of the inherent, should we say, ambiguity in tracking the number of days. We all know the quandary that you get put in when somebody says, how many days until Christmas? And you say, well, there's five days until Christmas. Oh, wait, wait, do I count the day that I'm on? And do I also count Christmas Day? That would make it seven days. So it's either either five, six, or seven days between now and Christmas. So there's that quandary that we always have when somebody says, how many days until this? The same sort of thing is happening here. Luke says, literally, he says, after about eight days. So Luke is clearly counting the beginning and the ending day. Matthew and Mark are both saying after exactly six days. So on the seventh day is when this begins to happen. And as we read here, we are invited now to be thinking of Moses and Moses' experience on the mountain. In your notes here, we've got a chart that I put together for you. We won't go through all of this, but you can, I would invite you to just meditate upon this through the week. It'll help you as you think through this passage in particular. If you think through this before we get back together on Wednesday, then this will have us really in a good frame of mind for that. But you can see the parallels that exist here between the transfiguration event and Moses' traveling up the mountain to meet with God on those two occasions in Exodus 24 and Exodus 34. Both of them were involved Moses being called and Moses goes up the mountain. Both of them uh, involved Moses. Or the, um, sorry, I'm sorry, three people are taken up. Jesus takes Peter, John, and James. Moses takes Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. They go up the mountain. There's the cloud that envelops them. There's this uh, bright light. There's the radiance of Jesus' clothes and Jesus' face. Uh, Also with the radiance of Moses' face, the voice speaks from the cloud. There's this declaration of the character of God. Then Moses comes down the mountain. Jesus and the disciples come down the mountain. And there is astonishment on on the part of the people as they come down the mountain. So many parallels and more that we could see here. So I'll just leave that for your own meditation there. 
the connections that we see between Moses, the Moses event and this event here. So after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. So the first question I ask is, well, why three? Why does Jesus choose three to take with him? And this reminds us, of course, of the long-standing tradition that we read all the way back from Deuteronomy chapter 18 of the witnesses that are required to establish a fact or to establish a testimony. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, God says that no one will be convicted on the testimony of one witness, but instead two or three witnesses are required. This thing, the same thing continues through our New Testament as we see even Paul saying to the Corinthians that when I come to you, every charge will be established by multiple witnesses, by two or three witnesses. So Jesus is taking with him up the mountain these three witnesses. These witnesses are going to be commanded to silence until after the resurrection. But after that, they will serve as the witnesses for what they see. We will see this because, again, we read earlier John's testimony. We saw this. We, we experienced this with our eyes, with our physical senses. We also read Peter's testimony in 2 Peter 1. We were on the mountain. We heard the voice. The cloud covered us. The cloud enveloped us. We experienced this. So he takes these three witnesses. And the, the question that we then ask, well, why these three? Why Peter, James, and John? And we're never told exactly why these are the three that Jesus seems to consistently single out. But we do see a pattern, and that pattern begins all the way back in chapter 1, that these are the three disciples that appear to be the ones that are singled out by Jesus for additional revelation, additional teaching, additional experiences with Jesus. These were the first three that were selected and called to follow Jesus. If we think back to the list of the apostles that Jesus called unto himself, these were the first three named of the apostles. The episode in which they go into Jairus' home and he raises Jairus' daughter back from the dead, these are the three that go in and experience that event with Jesus. Later on in chapter 14 in the Garden of Gethsemane, on Jesus' most difficult of all nights, these will be the three that Jesus takes with him and asks them specifically to pray for him. If we were to add in one more name, Andrew, and look to chapter 13, we would see that those four get a private explanation of what's called the Olivet Discourse that we talked about last week. So there's this group of three that seems to be the ones that Jesus is investing additional revelation into, additional teaching and additional training into. And they also are given this additional experience, this opportunity to experience what the other nine will not experience. So there's a pattern that that has shown up in Mark's gospel. And that pattern is the smaller the group of people, the greater the revelation. The smaller the group of people, the greater the revelation. Think of the two feedings, the 5,000 and the 4,000. That was a revelation of Jesus and who He was. But if you think about the nature of the revelation, it was revealing Jesus as the shepherd, as the provider, which is a revelation of Jesus, but nothing on par with what happened later the night after the, after the feeding of the first feeding of the 5,000 on the water. When Jesus comes walking to them on the water, and you remember all the points in that story, all the elements of that story in which Jesus was saying to those in the boat, I am Yahweh. I am the creator God. And so a smaller group of people, 12 people on the boat, they received greater revelation. Here now there's three people, and we're going to see in just a minute how these three are taken into solitude and they're receiving the greatest revelation yet. So three male disciples received the greatest revelation yet. At the end of Mark's gospel, three female disciples will receive a similar revelation when they are the ones who discover the empty tomb. 
So he takes them up for this, for this particularly special revelation, and he led them up a high mountain. So we could spend some time pondering maybe what mountain this was. That's not a good use of our time this morning, so we'll just say we don't know what mountain this was. There was about four mountains that it could have been, Mount Tabor, Mount, Mount Carmel, Mount Hermon, and it really doesn't matter because we could spend some time debating whether maybe it was this mountain or that mountain. In the end, God didn't tell us which mountain it is or was because we don't need to know because quite honestly, if we did know, what would we do, what would we do with it? We'd make some sort of religious shrine out of it and turn it into something that it wasn't. So God doesn't tell us what mountain it is, but instead we're just told that it is a high mountain. And immediately we begin to make connections with a consistent theme throughout the Old Testament in which we see again and again and again that the mountain is the place in which God so often chooses to reveal Himself to humanity. Think of Exodus 19 and God's revealing of Himself on Sinai. Think of the Elijah story, Mount Carmel. Or later on in the story, as Elijah is running from Jezebel and the three times that the Son of God comes to him on the mountain. So God, again and again in the Old Testament, chooses a mountain as the place to reveal Himself to humanity. Jesus likewise takes up the same theme, the same mantra. In your notes there, there's just a little chart there that shows us some of the things that Jesus does on the mountain. He prays on the mountain. He preaches on the mountain. He chooses his apostles on the mountain. He teaches on the mountain. So the mountain seems to be a place in which God says, this is where I will often choose to reveal myself to people. So Jesus leads them up the mountain. So already we know what to expect. If we didn't know what the story was about, if we didn't know the story and how it goes along, we still would know we need to be expecting something. Because now we've got a small group of people, Peter, James, and John, and they're going up a mountain by themselves. So we immediately know something big is about to happen. So he leads them up this high mountain by themselves. This will represent the greatest seclusion that Jesus has experienced Since the beginning, he has found moments of partial seclusion in which he could rise before the sun and go pray for a little while. Or maybe go on the mountain and pray while the disciples are on the waves on the boat. But his seclusion has been short-lived and people have always been nearby. And they've often come and done what? Interrupted him. This will be the greatest seclusion that Jesus will experience yet. You remember all the times that Jesus seems to try to be getting his disciples off to themselves, and yet he can't succeed because there's the crowd. There's the crowd here. But he goes up the mountain. He leads them up the mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. So that word transfigured, it is a word that we're familiar with in the English. The, the root of the word is a word that we have dealt with in the past. If you think back to the long distant past when we were in Philippians, anybody remember Philippians? And we were in chapter 2. You don't remember Philippians. We need to do it again. So back in chapter 2, you remember that passage that was a very difficult passage to work through, that uh, although uh, he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. You remember that passage? And we wrestled with that passage, and we found that that passage really rested upon one word, form, which is the Greek word morphe. And as we looked at that, we saw that this morphe speaks of, well, not the essence 
or, or not the, the, it speaks of the form, it speaks of the essence. And so though he is in the same essence of God, he's in the same form, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now we come to the same, or at least the same root, but now it has an additional prefix, metamorphe. And so we know this word metamorphosis, that's where our word metamorphosis comes from. And we're familiar with the use of this word metamorphosis in our language. In our language, it speaks of of a change, of a radical change that's visible and outward. And we use it for things like, well, like the tadpole, the tadpole that becomes the frog or the caterpillar that becomes the butterfly. And we use this word metamorphosis to describe such a radical outward visible change. But here's the key. That is not a change in essence. You get it? Okay. So the caterpillar and the butterfly share the same DNA. The caterpillar does not have new DNA than when it was a, a or when it becomes a butterfly, or the, the frog. The frog has the same DNA as the tadpole. So this radical outward change, yet the essence, the nature is the same. And so this is the word that means this radical outward change while the essence remains the same. And this is what Mark is describing, this metamorphosis, this transformation in which Jesus's essence or Jesus's nature undergoes no change. But then there is this radical outward visible change in what is seen. So this word metamorphosis shows up four times in our Bibles. Shows up here, shows up in the parallel account, Matthew 17. And then it shows up two times in Paul's epistles. It shows up in Romans chapter 12, and verse 2. Do not be conformed to this word, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So the transformation is a radical, what? Outward change, but it's not a change of essence. Shows up again in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 3 and verse 18. And this one is particularly helpful as we're thinking about the passage that's right before us. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are, here it is, being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So here Paul says, as we behold Christ, as we look to Christ, we are being transformed. Okay, So that word speaks of an outward change that's not a change in nature or in essence. So why does Paul use that word? Paul uses that word because that is the precise word that he wants to use to describe an exterior change, not a soul change or an essence change. You see, the word metamorphosis is never used to describe conversion. The word metamorphosis is never used to describe salvation. Because salvation is a change of essence, is a change of nature. It is a change of character. Instead, the word metamorphosis is used to describe sanctification. The inner has been changed. The nature has been changed with conversion. It is the outer that Paul is now speaking of. That's what's being transformed into the image of Christ as we behold him. And so that's why Paul uses the perfect word here. But that also shines some light, no pun intended, that shines some light into the passage before us. Because Mark is describing, and Matthew as well, he's describing the change that takes place in Jesus as this metamorphosis. He didn't change in his essence or in his nature or in his character or who he is. He instead undergoes this radical, dramatic, outward, visible change. 
You see, God, the Son, completely God, completely man, fully God, fully human. We are deficient in our thinking of God the Son when we think of Him as God disguised as a person, God wearing skin. That's a deficient, that's a wholly deficient view of the Son of God. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, fully God and fully man, before the resurrection, outwardly, one nature is visible. God chooses that prior to the resurrection, the outward appearance of Jesus would be the outward appearance of His human nature only. And so as God is revealing, is being transformed, as as Jesus is being metamorphosed, what God is doing is He is almost like a curtain, taking the human nature and pulling it aside to saying, this is the other nature. This is the other reality about my son. God isn't injecting anything into Jesus that wasn't there before. He isn't putting on some sort of light show. What God is doing is saying, this is also my son, but this is not seen until after the resurrection. So this is what's taking place at the transfiguration before them. This transformation, this metamorphosis 